When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Guys, are you trying to stay in 20-year-old shape into your 30s and 40s and finding it, well, impossible? Then you need to listen to this. Beachbody, the company that revolutionized getting ripped at home with P90X and Insanity, has a brand new program just for you called Lift 4. It's part lift. It's part hit. With total body shredding results in just 30 to 40 minutes a day, right at home on the Beachbody On Demand app. That's how you get killer results as an adult. Go to Beachbody.com to sign up now and you can try Live 4 for free. That's Beachbody.com. When I was a little kid, every winter my friends and I used to play a game we called the King of the Mountain. What we did was wait until the snow got deep enough and the snowplows had come through my neighborhood and built up a nice size hill smack dab in the middle of the suburban court I lived on. Then my friends and I would all pile on top of the hill and try to shove each other off it. If you fell off the hill, you were dead and out of the game. But the last one standing? Well, he became the king of the mountain. Of course, this wasn't exactly an original concept. You may have played some variation on this game yourself growing up. At its heart, the game is all about survival, and about seeing who has what it takes to make it against all odds. Those are heavy concepts for a child, and they're the sort of things you never consider when you're young and believe you're indestructible. Back in 1979, a remarkable 11-year-old boy played his own game of King of the Mountain. Only his game contained truly deadly stakes. On February 19, 1979, a Cessna 172 lifted off from Santa Monica Airport on a chartered flight to California's Big Bear. It was 7 in the morning. The plane held four passengers, including the pilot, Rob Arnold. The other three passengers included a man named Norman Olstad Sr., whose resume included the improbable combination of attorney, former child star, and FBI agent. The other two passengers were Norman's girlfriend, Sandra, and Norman's 11-year-old son, Norman Olstad Jr. They were all on their way to Big Bear to collect a trophy Norman Jr. had won in the Southern California Slalom Skiing Competition. They had driven back to Santa Monica a day earlier in order to get Norman Jr. back in time for his Junior League hockey game. But rather than make the long car ride all over again, Norman Sr. decided to charter a plane to zip them back to Big Bear in no time. The Cessna lifted off then banked over Venice Beach and headed east past Westwood. Norman Jr. was excited since he got to ride up front right next to the pilot. He even got to wear one of those giant headsets that managed to cover up half of his 11-year-old face. Over Venice Beach, it was all blue skies and sunshine. Up ahead in the distance, Norman Jr. could see the gray shapes of the San Bernardino Mountains stretching along the horizon. A layer of steel-gray clouds hovered around the mountain's peaks. Norman Jr. shared his father's thirst for adventure. As they came up over the mountains, the boy peered out the windows through the breaks in the clouds at the snow-covered peaks below and thought how much fun it would be to ski those slopes. Norman Jr. turned back to his dad, who was seated behind the pilot seat reading the sports section. He asked him how much longer it'd be. About a half hour, his dad said. 
When Norman Jr. turned his attention to the mountains, he thought it almost looked as if the peaks were up higher than the plane itself. He squeezed the oversized headphones the pilot Rob had let him wear and listened in on the radio chatter with Pomona Control. Pilot Rob told Pomona he'd prefer not to go above 7,500 feet because of his concern about the freezing temperatures at a higher altitude. Then another private plane radioed in and issued Pilot Rob a warning against flying into Big Bear without the proper instruments. The control tower asked Pilot Rob if he'd copied that. Roger that, Rob said. By now they were heading directly into the path of one of those once distant gray storm clouds. The plane shuddered as they became enveloped by gray mist. The pilot kept his hands steady on the steering wheel. It was difficult to see much of anything now. Norman Jr. had hoped he'd be able to catch a glimpse in the distance of the championship slope where he'd won his trophy the day before. But now it appeared that wasn't going to happen. Then a dark shape whipped by the window over his shoulder. Was that a tree branch? All the way up here? Norman Jr. glanced back nervously at his father, who grinned at him while he was munching an apple. Something scraped against the passenger window of the plane. Pine needles. Snow pelted the windows all around them. By now, with the heavy gray mist, it was impossible to see more than a couple feet in any direction. Something slammed hard into the windshield, and the entire plane shuddered. Another tree branch, a big one. After that, time seemed to slow down. Pilot Rob reached down with one hand to spin the knee-high trim wheel, trying to make the plane climb higher. Then he put both hands back on the controls and jerked backwards hard. Norman Jr.'s small fingers dug into the padding of his seat as the plane tilted slowly upwards. Too slow. One of the Cessna's wings clipped the top of a tree, jolting Norman Jr. in his seat. There was a thunderous roar, then the plane was spinning around in midair. The Cessna smashed into another tree, then ping-ponged off it into another. Norman was screaming, but it was impossible to hear over the shriek of tearing metal and the guttural roar of the plane's engine. The airplane slammed into Ontario Peak at a height of 8,693 feet. The Cessna tumbled end over end and shattered into a thousand pieces that scattered over the mountain's north face. What happened next was one of those moments that proved who the king of the mountain truly was. I'm Nate Hale, high up in the Himalayas in my mountaintop recording studio with my friendly Yeti companion. And this is The Conspirators. To understand what happened with the plane crash on the mountain, it's best to take a step back and learn about the boy. Norman Olstad Jr. was born on May 30, 1967 to Norman Sr. and his then-wife Doris. To say that his early life was unconventional would be a bit of an understatement. Norman grew up around Topanga Beach, and it was there that his father pushed him into a number of activities that a lot of people, Norman Jr. included, thought were pretty reckless for a little kid. Norman Sr. pushed him to learn to surf at an early age, as well as becoming a competitive downhill skier and hockey player. It was because of all his adventures that Norman Sr. nicknamed his son the Boy Wonder. Norman Sr. got his own start as a child actor. He got his first big break with an uncredited role in the 1950 Clifton Webb comedy Cheaper by the Dozen. After that, he continued getting other small roles in a number of movies and TV shows, usually just bit parts and one-offs. 
Although he did manage to score a recurring role playing an airplane mechanic on the adventure program Sky King, which is all the more ironic considering how he died. By the time he turned 25, Norman Sr. left acting behind and earned his law degree. By then he'd set his sights on a new goal, joining the Federal Bureau of Investigation. In his mind, he had it all planned out. It would be a heroic life, one full of excitement and adventure, arresting bad guys just like Elliot Ness in The Untouchables. Before joining the Bureau, Norman Sr. read every book he could get his hands on about the FBI's legendary director, J. Edgar Hoover. But after he entered the FBI Training Academy, Norman Sr. realized something was terribly wrong. According to Hoover's policies, all cadet trainees were required to get perfect scores on all their exams. A task that might seem daunting at first, except that the instructor provided the trainees with all the answers beforehand. It turned out the only real test was the final one, meeting J. Edgar Hoover himself face to face. Hoover would look you over and either give you his blessing or dismiss you as unfit. From there, the respect Norman Sr. once had for J. Edgar Hoover began to slip dramatically. On his first day as a real agent, Norman was confused when he realized all his fellow agents always picked the most beat-up cars from the FBI garage. This was because Hoover had a policy where each agent was forced to pay for any damage to their vehicles out of their own pocket in order to keep the Bureau's insurance costs down. On another occasion, Hoover actually assigned Norman and several other agents the task of finding and counting stolen cars. This was a way of padding the FBI's books to make it look as if they had solved more crimes than they really did. Then came a couple more incidents that finally broke Norman's faith in the Bureau entirely. A friend of his was fired for what Norman saw as a bogus reason, having what Hoover deemed to be an indecent relationship with his fiancée before they were married. Then came another time when dozens of field agents across 52 field offices were tasked solely with reading newspapers and watching television with the sole task of looking for stories about J. Edgar Hoover himself. Norman Olstad Sr. quit the Bureau after only a year and went on to write a tell-all book called Inside the FBI that instantly put him on Hoover's enemies list. The book came out the year Norman Jr. was born, which resulted in the family having their phones tapped and having false news stories planted in papers attempting to discredit him. Norman Sr. settled down in Topanga Beach, got married, and had a son. He took up surfing and began practicing law, working for a time as an assistant U.S. attorney under Robert Kennedy. But the marriage ended in divorce, and Norman Jr. went to live with his mother and her abusive boyfriend. Norman Jr.'s home life was rough, and it wasn't made any easier by the presence of his father, who kept pushing his little boy to engage in all sorts of dangerous activities. Surfing, downhill skiing, hockey always pushing him harder, to go further, to never give up. All of which may have ultimately helped him up there on top of the mountain after the plane crash. 11-year-old Norman Jr. awoke slowly. It was freezing up there in the mountain. They'd come crashing down only 125 feet from the tip of Ontario Peak. At an altitude of almost 9,000 feet, the snow pelting Norman's face made him dream about skiing. But as consciousness came back to him, he realized he was lying pinned on his side, still strapped into his airplane seat. The wind all around him bit at his exposed skin. He tried to breathe, but his seatbelt was cutting into his midsection and made it difficult to catch his breath. This was a dream, he decided. A nightmare. 
Norman lurched in and out of consciousness, believing that sooner or later he'd wake up in his own warm bed back home. But soon he came to realize that he wasn't asleep, and that this wasn't a dream. From his vantage point, he could see Pilot Rob's body sprawled out just beyond the shattered remains of the Cessna's cockpit. His face was a mass of blood, and he wasn't moving. Norman's hands fumbled to undo his seatbelt buckle. He tumbled out of his seat, crunching down into the snow. He gasped for breath. The icy air filled his lungs. His dad would fix all this, he thought. His dad would know what to do and would save them all. That was the last thought he had just before he passed out again. He woke again some unknown time later. His body was shivering uncontrollably. Between the swirling snow and the low-lying fog, it was difficult to make out much of his surroundings. There was debris everywhere. Norman realized his body was lying at a steep angle. So steep, in fact, he was amazed he hadn't slid straight down the side of the mountain. His head was pressed up against a hunk of twisted metal, and his hair was frozen to it. The ice cracked as he pulled his head away. Nearby, he could make out the dark shape of a pine tree jutting up out of the snow. Not just any tree, he thought, but judging by the damage to it, he believed it was the tree, the one the plane had slammed into. His feet were pressed up against a piece of the instrument panel. He pushed gingerly against it, and the entire chunk of wreckage slid away down the slope and vanished in the fog. Norman was suddenly very aware that if he wasn't careful, he would suffer the same fate. He couldn't see exactly what lay below, but he knew in his gut it was a long way down. He rolled over onto his stomach, digging the toes of his sneakers into the snow for purchase. He didn't have a jacket on, only a ski sweater. It had been pretty warm when they took off, so there hadn't been any need for gloves or a hat or other protective gear. He dug his bare hands into the snow and began inching his way across the ground toward the area where he'd spotted Pilot Rob. As he dragged himself closer, the snow gradually turned from soft powder to a hard crust that made it easier to find his grip. He got close enough to the pilot to confirm that the man was indeed dead. There was a large hole in the middle of Pilot Rob's face. He actually saw the man's nose resting on the snow next to what remained of his skull. He realized as he began to get his bearings that he was in a large gully along the side of the mountain. A chute, his dad would have called it. He guessed that it dropped off into a canyon below. There would undoubtedly be jagged rocks down there somewhere, and who knew what other treacherous terrain. He cried out for his dad, but it wasn't his dad's voice that answered. Instead, it was Sandra, his dad's girlfriend. Norman followed the sound of her voice and dragged himself on his belly toward her. She was higher up along the peak and still strapped into her seat. Norman realized that Sandra was in an especially dangerous part of the slope, a wide, curving depression that dropped away at a sharp angle. Skiers would have called it a funnel. It might have made a fun run, but a dangerous one even for the most experienced skiers. When an avalanche occurred, Norman knew the snow would slide right down into that funnel, washing away and burying everything in its path. Considering how much they'd already disturbed the mountaintop, Norman decided that the last place in the universe either of them should be was in that funnel. Sandra was crying when he finally reached her. Your dad's dead, she told him. The news hit Norman like a slap in the face. That was impossible. Not his dad, no, no way. But then he looked over to where she was pointing and he could see the dark shape of his dad's body slumped over at an awkward angle in his seat with his face down into his lap. 
He had been right there all along, directly behind the seat Norman had just climbed out of. The way his body was leaning forward, Norman had to wonder if his dad had lunged instinctively toward him to protect him from the crash. What are we going to do, Norman? Sandra cried. She was shivering and her forehead was sticky with blood from a scalp wound. Sandra kept talking to him, but he couldn't focus on her words. He kept staring at his dad's still body, hoping, praying that he wasn't really dead and that he was just unconscious. One of Sandra's shoulders was drooping much lower than the other, and she cried out in pain when she tried to move. Norman could tell it was dislocated. Sandra sobbed into her one good hand, and Norman realized then and there that if they were going to survive, it was going to be up to him. He tried to remember the things his dad had taught him. He couldn't give up. That was rule number one. Giving up meant losing a lot more than just a stupid game this time. But if he and Sandra were going to survive, he'd have to use his brain and think about his moves carefully. He realized for starters that in order to get back to his dad, he needed to turn himself completely around and face the other way. But he had to do so carefully. That was something else his dad had taught him. Once you got moving on the ice, it was practically impossible to stop. He got up into his skier's crouch and spun himself around in a fast swivel, just like he'd learned on the ski slopes. It was haul hard-packed snow where he was crouched, and he was only able to dig his sneakers in less than an inch. He moved ahead slowly, alternating between his skier's crouch and a belly crawl. Before he could help Sandra, he needed to check in his dad. Norman thought he was making pretty good progress when his grip slipped and suddenly he was sliding down the hill. He cried out for his dad, but his dad wasn't there to catch him. Norman's arms flailed out in every direction as his body slid helplessly downward. He just managed to grab hold of a baby evergreen that jerked him to an abrupt halt. Norman stared up at all the wreckage. He'd slid at least a couple dozen feet, although it felt like it had been miles. He would have to climb all the way back up if he was ever going to get it back to Sandra and his dad. All the rage and hopelessness inside him let loose all at once, and he began to cry. Only the tears froze instantly against his cheeks in the bitter cold. When Norman felt secure again, he dug his hands and feet back into the ice-covered slope and began to climb perilously up the hill. It took at least a half hour to haul himself up the remaining 20 feet to his dad's body. Nearby, he could see by now that Pilot Rob's body was already half-covered in snow, and he knew it wouldn't be long before he was completely covered. When Norman finally reached his dad's body, he pressed his lips to his ear. Wake up, Dad, he told him. Wake up. His dad didn't move. He tried shaking him awake, only that was a mistake because it made Norman lose his footing and nearly go careening back down the hill again. He looked over at Sandra to see how she was doing. Not well. Her eyes were closed and her head lolled forward against her chest. He dug into the hard, compacted snow with his heels and shook his dad some more. But he must have been shaking too hard because he suddenly heard his own seat from the plane groan. Then, without warning, the seat dislodged from the snow and shot off down the hill past him. His dad hadn't moved once. Dad's body was bent in half like a folding chair. Norman hugged his father's body tight, and he whispered to him that he would save them. He would save them all. When Norman finally found the strength to let go, he turned away from his father's dead body and tried to figure out what he had to work with. Pieces of the plane were scattered all across the mountaintop. 
One of the wings had sheared off and was partially lodged in the snow at an angle on the opposite side of the chute. It was dug in deep and didn't look like it was going anywhere. He got down on all fours and crawled through the blizzard toward it. The wing had formed a lean-to against the wind and snow. Along the way, he hoped he would find something he could use, maybe an ice axe or a shovel, or at least a pair of gloves for his numb hands. He called out to Sandra and told her to come to him by the wing. Sandra responded by telling him she couldn't move. Norman knew that it wasn't that she couldn't move, it was that she didn't want to. He didn't know how he could convince Sandra to come to him. She was a grown-up and he was just a kid, after all. He thought of how his dad was around her. Dad was always taking care of her, and she listened to him when he asked her to do things. But now his dad was dead, and things were different now. Now it was Norman Jr. who had the unenviable task of taking care of Sandra. He found a small rug near the broken wing and carried it over toward her and laid it down behind her seat, thinking he might be able to drag her across the snow on it like a sled if she wouldn't move on her own. He got beneath her and grabbed her leather boots with his hands, then moved her feet over to where he needed her to dig into the snow. Move with me, he told her. Just do what I say and we'll both get under the wing for shelter. And surprise, surprise, his instructions worked. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. He guided Sandra along, telling her each move she should make, and occasionally repositioning her legs to where they needed to be in order to keep her from sliding. It was slow going because Sandra only had one good arm to help drag herself along the steep slope. He lay the rug underneath the wing and the two of them huddled together for warmth. At one point, Sandra asked him if they were going to die. Norman didn't know the answer to that and told her they should get some sleep. Soon, the two of them drifted off together. Norman awoke hours later to a familiar repetitive noise. Sandra's wristwatch had survived the crash and it told him that it was almost 12 noon. They had left around 7, which meant they'd been out here about 5 hours. Norman knew what that noise was. A helicopter. He could hear the rotors spinning nearby. The gray clouds were beginning to break up, exposing little patches of blue. But he still couldn't see the chopper anywhere. Then the noise faded away and Norman began to wonder if he'd imagined it. Then the noise of the helicopter returned, louder now, and he could see it. He climbed out from under the wing and screamed for help, waving his arms wildly in the air. The helicopter hovered over the treetops in the distance. It was close enough that Norman could actually see the shape of a man in a helmet in the pilot's seat. He was certain that the man must have seen him too. Norman shuffled closer. The copter tipped to one side, and Norman believed that this must be the man signaling him. But then the copter tilted upwards and flew away. Norman couldn't believe it. He had to break the news to Sandra that they hadn't seen him. That meant it was still up to him to save them. He had to think like his dad. His dad liked to set goals, like the time he set his sights on joining the FBI. Now that the sun had eased up and the sun was beginning to poke through the clouds, Norman had a better view of their surroundings. The icy chute they were stuck on the edge of dropped off for at least 20 yards. 
and was bordered on both sides by jagged rocks. He squinted his eyes and peered as far as he could down the steep slope. Far below it appeared that the ground leveled out into a flat meadow. It looked like a safe place, and if he could just figure out how to get there, then at least they wouldn't have to worry so much about falling off the side of a mountain anymore. Then there were other interesting things he could see in the distance even further away. He tried to follow the path of the mountain toward level ground, thinking like the skier he was. If he'd had skis, he thought he could make it no problem. Maybe. As Norman kept scanning the area around the far-off meadow he'd spotted in the distance, he saw something else. A dark, rectangular shape that was too perfect to be a natural formation. He was certain that the shape was man-made. A rooftop. A rooftop meant shelter. It might even be another people. Norman charted out a path the two of them could take in his mind. If they could get down the mountain, they could then make it to that meadow. And from that meadow, they would make it to the woods to the building that lay beyond. Those were all some big ifs, but what other choice did they have? He went back to Sandra and told her there was a cabin down there, but they needed to move. Sandra's lips were blue and she looked completely worn out. Norman ordered her to get up. She said she was tired, and she began to shut her eyes. Norman lost it. He snapped at her that if Sandra didn't get up right now, she was going to freeze to death. The two of them argued. Someone will come for them, Sandra insisted. No, they won't, Norman said. If anyone was coming, they would have been here already. There was only one way off this mountain, he told her. Norman went and broke off some tree branches and stripped them of their needles. He showed her that by digging them into the snow, they could act like ski poles and keep them from falling. Sandra finally gave in and agreed to come along when Norman told her that he was going with her or without her. The two of them used their sticks to dig into the snow and maintain their balance. It was more difficult for Sandra than it was for Norman, since she only had one arm to work with. The two of them went slowly, with Norman in the lead, instructing Sandra on what to do every precarious step of the way. They inched their way along the slope back toward the funnel. Early on, things went wrong. Sandra kept slipping and she nearly toppled the both of them down the side of the mountain. But when they got to the edge of the funnel, things went completely south and Sandra lost her footing just above him. In that split second, Norman knew exactly how this was all going to play out. Sandra slid down hard and slammed right into him. The two of them tumbled together, free-falling now on a lightning-fast toboggan ride down the mountain slope. Norman tried digging in with his fingers and toes, but this part of the slope was almost solid ice. He remembered what his dad had told him about when you got going on the ice and wouldn't be able to stop. But they caught one lucky break because their sheer momentum had sent them sailing at an angle instead of plummeting straight down. They slammed hard into some of the jutting rocks that bordered the funnel. It was painful, but at least it stopped their fall. They eased their way over to a rock wall. Norman was exhausted, but he knew they couldn't turn back now even if they wanted to. They were still thousands of feet away from the meadow, and soon night would be falling. They eventually went back to their earlier plan of using sticks to help steady themselves. At first, Sandra stayed close by him. Their last close call had been a little too close. But as they continued to descend, Norman realized Sandra was beginning to lag behind. At one point when she was three or four feet behind him, he turned just in time to see Sandra lose her footing one last time. Sandra rocketed past him on the downward slope. Her fingertips grazed his bicep as she shot past. 
Norman reached blindly for her, but she was already moving too fast. And just like that, she was gone, screaming his name as she went. Norman followed a trail of blood as far as it led, hoping to find Sandra injured but still alive. But as he worked his way down the slope, the blood trail told a terrible story. The red smear ended at the trunk of the first big tree he encountered since their descent had begun. Then beyond the tree, there was no more blood, just a steep incline, dropping off into the fog below. Sandra must have slammed right into that tree, then toppled away into the distance. There was nothing Norman could do. He was all alone now and he had to keep going. It was getting late. Soon it would be dark and nearly impossible to see anything. He didn't want to be caught in this mountain with no shelter and no way to see. Norman was exhausted and he was so thirsty. He ate snow to quench his thirst even though his dad had instructed him that you weren't supposed to do that. The snow would only lower your internal body temperature more. Norman continued on his path down the chute even though all he wanted to do was lay down and sleep. But he knew that if he laid down now he wouldn't be getting up again. Not ever. Sometime later he found Sandra's body lying on its back near a small cliff face. Her eyes were wide open and for a moment he'd had the vague hope that she was still alive, just as he'd once hoped his father was. But Sandra was just as dead as he had been. Norman took some of his precious time and energy to cover Sandra's body with some spruce branches before moving on. He could still see the dark shape of the cabin's rooftop in the distance. It was closer now, but still so far away. He realized somewhere along the way that he could move faster and save some energy by sliding down parts of the hill on his butt. But the further he went, the steeper the slope got, and he was forced to revert to lying flat on his belly and pulling himself along once again. The terrain grew more treacherous the further down he got. At one point, Norman reached a narrow creek bed with running water that he had to leap over in order to keep from getting soaked and freezing to death. Then, he eventually found his way to his biggest obstacle yet, a dry waterfall that dropped off at a 90-degree angle. He stared down over the cliff's edge and knew that he was going to have to climb down it, but one slip and he would fall 50 feet into the jagged slabs of rock poking up at the bottom. Norman dug in with his fingertips, and with every bit of his strength he had left, climbed down the sheer rock wall. His fingers worked to find every narrow crevice, the tips of his sneakers digging in for every foothold. When he was only a few feet away from the bottom, he felt safe enough to jump down the rest of the way. He thought it would be easier going once he reached level ground, but he was wrong. The snow here became thick and gummy, and he had to trudge through it upright. There wouldn't be any sliding on his butt from this point on. Each step he took felt as if he had lead weights attached to his feet. 200 yards further on, the slight downslope ended at a flat plain of white. It was the meadow. Norman trudged onward. The snow looked smoothed here, but he soon realized it was deceptively deep when he began to see the tops of gnarled buckthorn poking up out of the surface. He was moving with tentative steps when he felt the thick snow give way underneath his feet, and suddenly he was dropping down into a hole. Norman was caught in a bramble of sharp thorns that tore at his skin. He tried jerking away, but the thick tangles held on like talons. He lay there thinking he was going to die. He almost gave up and let himself go when he looked up and realized he was staring at an airplane flying low overhead. He waved his arms as best he could and yelled. Miraculously, the plane turned around and circled the meadow. Then it turned away and flew off. He waited, expecting the plane to return, only it never did. 
that was the moment Norman decided he was going to die. By now he was trapped, and all his strength was gone. Night was fully upon him now, and he knew soon he'd just fall asleep and never wake up. The snow would cover over him just like Pilot Rob. But Norman realized at the same time that he didn't want to die. He remembered the lessons his dad had instilled in him to never give up, to never back down, to fight to the end. Norman jerked his body against the sharp vines. He wouldn't give up. His dad wouldn't want him to. The brittle vines cracked and broke all around him, and suddenly Norman was free. He dragged himself out of the hole, climbing back to the surface. There was still more of the meadow to get across, but this time he would be more careful. Every step of the way, Norman wanted to quit, but he refused. When he finally reached the edge of the meadow, he realized there was yet another obstacle in his path. A dense forest that was almost completely black in the darkness. Norman had no idea how he was going to find his way through that at night. Or even if it would lead him to the cabin he'd seen from up above. As he looked around, he noticed some depressions in the snow that took him a minute to recognize. They were boot prints. Fresh ones. Norman followed the path of those footprints for a while before he realized they were leading him in a circle. It still wasn't hopeless, though. Footprints meant people. And people meant he could be saved. That was when Norman realized that he could hear a voice in the distance. He shouted for help at the top of his lungs. Hello? Someone shouted back. Help, he screamed again. The voice told him to keep yelling so that he could find him. Norman stumbled forward in the direction the voice was coming from. He came around a bend to a place where the snow thinned out to reveal a road. Then suddenly a dog appeared, bounding up toward him with its pink tongue lolling out of its mouth. The dog was followed by a teenage boy wearing a flannel jacket. Are you from the crash, he said? The teenage boy's name was Glenn Farmer, and although Norman protested at first, he picked him up in his arms and carried him back down the road to a ranch house next to a sawmill where his family lived and worked. The family warmed Norman up by the fire and listened amazed to his story. They called the Mount Baldy Fire Station and soon Norman was whisked away to the nearest hospital. Norman Allstad Jr. was suffering from exposure as well as some cuts and bruises and a broken hand. But otherwise, he was physically okay, even despite being out in the elements for as long as he'd been. He made a full recovery, and when he was back on his feet again and living once more with his mom in Topanga Beach... He decided to quit surfing and skiing and just tried hanging out with the neighborhood kids like a normal boy. When Norman grew older, he enrolled in UCLA film school and decided to become a writer. In 2006, he decided to write the story of his ordeal on the mountain. While doing research, he actually returned to the original scene and found some of the plane debris still up there on top of the mountain. He also reconnected with the Farmer family that found him down there at the base of the mountain. He asked Mrs. Farmer why she'd sent her son out looking in the snow that day. She didn't know, she said. It was just a feeling she'd had. Norman wrote about everything that happened to him in his memoir, Crazy for the Storm. Norman got married and had a son of his own, who he named Noah. He taught Noah how to ski and how to surf, just like his dad had done. But unlike his dad, he let Noah choose his own path. If the boy didn't want to do it, that was okay too. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have some new Patreon supporters I need to give special thanks to. 
Thank you to Vito, Reggie, and Rachel. You're all awesome. Just a reminder that patrons of the show get access to all sorts of bonuses like stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our bonus mini-episodes. There are lots of other ways you can help support the show as well. One way you can do so is by clicking the donate button on our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Another is by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. If you're not on Apple, not to worry, we're also on Stitcher, Google Play, and your favorite podcast app. Thanks again for joining us, and I hope you'll be back next time.